So I mentioned before that I did a soul collage, my first ever soul collage about a week and a half ago at a day-long retreat for ministers. I'm not going to show it to you now because it required too much explanation, but it's sitting in my office. And if you come by the office, say hello for whatever reason, I will explain to you what it means. There's actually several different ways to compose a soul collage, sort of four different methods. And I chose the first method, which is what they call the committee suit, like talking about cards. Now, this committee suit is about creating a collage that represents the sort of voices within you. I don't want to say the voices in your head. It makes it sound neurotic, although sometimes it is that. The voices that compose you, the committee, so to speak. Now, actually, I turned out all right in terms of where my voices were in my collage in that committee. But I know sometimes in all of our lives, there are those moments when the committee doesn't seem so kind, when they speak only in the harsher tones of judgment and in the deeper and very painful vocabulary of the inability to love our lives, which in fact is the inability to love ourselves. Perhaps it's that projector that plays in your head almost nonstop. The one that screens daily your greatest flops, failures, and flaws over and over again. And you say to yourself, I'm not going to pay the price of admission this time. And yet still you're there night after night after night attending that horrible screening. You can't stand the movie, but you watch anyway. It's those endlessly looping replayed scenes that start with words like this. If only I had spoken up. Or if only I had shut up. The voices that say, if only I was a little, fill in the blank, smarter, better looking, thinner. You fill in the blank yourselves. You know what belongs there for you. If only I was, mm, that's a tough committee to deal with. At its worst, inadequate self-love is a complete and utter conundrum, the worst many of us will ever face. Because as human beings, we are problem-solving creatures. We get a lot of reward from seeing and spotting problems in our life and solving them. But the problem is this, if that we want to get to the core of our pain, the source of our pain, and we cannot love ourselves, we find that the source of our pain is us. And how do we solve the problem that is us when we are both the judge and the judged. The challenge is, how do we remove the weeds of self-loathing without ripping out the deeper connection and the roots of our lives? Now, one answer to this, I was reminded of this past week when one of my happiest days of the entire year occurred. Pitchers and catchers. Say it with me. Pitchers and catchers. It's like poetry. Pitchers and catchers. Oh, thank God they're back. the first day of spring training. Pitchers and catchers report. I was going to get to that. Now, one of those pitchers and catchers who actually isn't with us any longer is a guy named Dan Quisenberry. And he uttered perhaps the wisest words of true self-acceptance and self-love that I have ever heard. He said in speaking to a sports reporter once, he's asking about his technique, his wind-up. He said, I found a delivery 
in my flaw. Now, if you know anything about baseball, it works the other way around. Someone who's not pitching very well will say, I spotted the flaw in my delivery so I could get back to 100%. Not Dan Quisenberry. Got a very unorthodox way of throwing, but very, very effective. He said, I found a delivery in my flaw. Notice how he entirely reframed the issue of the problem. He assumed that there were always, always going to be flaws. There were always going to be problems. Once he accepted that, he could build on it. And in that way, I think actually he echoed the wisdom of one of the smartest people that has ever walked this earth, who is Einstein, who said no problem can be solved from the same consciousness that created it. I'll repeat that. No problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created it. When we really struggle with loving ourselves, with the lack of loving ourselves, one of the ways that we can find the way to the other side and recognize that we are beautiful is to try and find those ways of creating a new consciousness, reframing our lives. And as Dan Quisenberry said, the first step in that, of course, is going beyond perfectionism, going beyond that snare, that trap that we set for ourselves in which we are so often tripped up. Yesterday, I actually was with one of my favorite new people. You know, you meet these people and you can just tell they're just, you're going to have a lifelong friendship with them. She's a chaplain in a local hospice. And we're working with a person right now who we know both of us together, who's, who's dying. And she was talking about serving communion recently. She's uh, from a Christian faith, very progressive. And she was talking about serving communion to someone she knows who is dying. And she was looking for the right moment, the right moment to administer the final communion of this person's life. And she said, I just couldn't find it. I couldn't find the right moment when they were conscious enough, when they were aware enough, awake enough. But the problem was when they were aware and awake, they were in so much pain. And me, who grew up Jewish, has taken, I think, communion once in his life when I was visiting a friend's very progressive Episcopal church. I felt moved to do so. I said, well, I don't know how to solve that for you, but isn't it the fact that the bread starts out broken? The bread's broken to begin with. If we start with the assumption that there is no perfectionism, we can give ourselves permission to move beyond the exact right moment. If we start with the assumption of imperfection, I will tell you folks, it can only get better. But if you start with the assumption that unless you are perfect, you will never be good, well, that's the problem right there. Years ago, I knew a woman who grew up in one of those families in which she was taught in ways uh, obvious and in ways subtle to hate her body. I mean, really unfortunate, awful kinds of stuff. And she vowed that when she became a mom, she would not commit the same mistake, that her daughter that she was raising would love her body. And so she engaged in a technique that was motivated by kindness and love where she would stand with her daughter in front of a mirror when they were both naked and said, this is your body. Love it. It is what it is. Accept yourself. The only problem with that is that what daughter got from mom was all the anxiety. You should love your body because I really don't love mine. So it didn't achieve the goal that mom wanted it to achieve. See, true love cannot be forced. It can only be shaped and it can only be shared. 
Diana Ross is absolutely right, was absolutely right. You cannot hurry love. You can shape it, form it, but it cannot be forced. Now, I'm a big believer, and we have as one of our core values here at Wellsprings the value, the intrinsic value of spiritual practices. And really what we're talking about in spiritual practices is spiritual formation, shaping and forming our lives in such a way through diligence and effort so that we can take shape and nourish and grow all throughout our lives in regular, small, daily ways, just like we saw with the soul collage and with the paintings. But sometimes... When we are struggling most mightily with not being able to love ourselves, all that effort can seem very counterproductive. It can seem like we are pouring water into a bucket and pouring it in and pouring it in and pouring it in. And then all of a sudden we recognize that there has been a hole in the bucket all along. And it will not contain what we want it to contain. It just keeps leaking. We cannot force it. If you do, you confuse what is fundamentally a demand problem, which is the shape of your life, for a supply problem. We look in the wrong ways and in the wrong places. When we are struggling with not just lack of loving ourselves, but sometimes even as strong as self-loathing, we know that the container needs to change shape, not what's contained. These moments of recognition are some of the most painful moments we will have in our lives when the absence of the true love that we can have for ourselves is revealed not to be there. But these moments can also help us awaken. Sometimes we perceive this lack of authentic self-love not so much in how we think about ourselves, but when we find that we are much more limited in our compassion for other people than we might have hoped for and might have wished. There's a guy named Donald Miller who's an evangelical Christian, one of my favorite writers. You might think he's a rare breed. I actually think he's more common than the stereotype might admit. He is thoroughly an evangelical Christian. He is also open-minded and loving, explicitly doesn't go around bashing people who are not of his faith, doesn't go around bashing gay folks. Beautiful book of his called Blue Like Jazz. He struggles in one chapter to realize, realize, The second great commandment, as Jesus taught it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he never realized how far he was from that until one day he was in the supermarket. This is the scenario. He was standing in the checkout line, three of them there, a young teenage checkout girl, the writer himself, Don Miller, and a woman who was paying for her groceries with food stamps. And he recognized how uncomfortable all of them were, himself especially. One of the things he points out, and if you've ever seen what food stamps are, ever had to use them yourself, you see how brightly colored they are. It's awful. It's almost like a scarlet letter in many ways. They really want to mark you and tell you that this is not real money, not true money. And one of the things that Donald Miller recognized is that the woman who was purchasing the groceries kept her head down the entire time, didn't look up. She paid, turned, walked out, never, never wanting to catch anyone's glance, anyone's eye. Kind of like if you remember that phrase in a very different context from college, walk of shame. (laughs) Different thing here. This is a true walk of shame in which you cannot look anyone else in the eye 
because you're feeling so degraded. Well, Donald Miller really thought long and hard about his reaction, his response to this woman paying with the food stamps. Because he recognized his instinct was that he didn't really want to buy her groceries. He wanted to buy her dignity and give it back to her. But in judging her in this way, of course, he was devaluing her dignity. Donald Miller's problem, he realized, was that he was completely overcome by the thought of himself in her shoes. He could not imagine ever being anything but shameful if he had to be in that situation of feeling that he did not earn what he was trying to purchase. And it wasn't just a matter of the groceries as he gets deeper and deeper into the story. He knows that if he does not feel he earns the love that he has from himself or another person, if he's not producing, well, then what good is he? His love of self fell off the cliff when he no longer thought he could earn it. And he recognized he was violating that second great commandment that was so deep and intrinsic to the heart of his faith because he could not love her, because he could not love himself walking in her shoes. And he felt pity and not compassion. Real, true, steadfast love for ourselves, for other people, it is so often found at the margins, at the edges of what we believe we are owed. At this outer limits of this getting and spending life, we might come to know a steadfast love, and we sense our reluctance to this real, and it is a tough kind of love, sometimes when we are around people who are ill, people who are sick. It's not that we don't love them, we do. We recognize sometimes how uncomfortable they can make us. The sick the old, the infirm, the mentally ill, the mentally challenged. Those that sometimes when we dig deeply, honestly into our own feelings, we perceive that they cannot make it on their own. And sometimes we hear ourselves saying those words, yes, I love them, but I would never want a life like that. That's all about us. That's all about our fear of being dependent, our fear of being needy. And we wonder, how lovable would we be if we were in their shoes, if we can no longer earn it? This is the secret to loving your neighbor as yourself, that you are the old one, you are the ill one, you are the needy one, you are the mentally challenged one. You are the depressed one. That kind of self-love, true self-love, it is real. It is as real as a child's fairy tale, like the Velveteen Rabbit. What happens in the Velveteen Rabbit? He is only real when what? Parents, what happens? When his fur is rubbed off. When he's no longer bright and pristine and he's not worth what the Velveteen Rabbit would have been in the store. But that's when the love is most real and most transformative. Sometimes the reality of our true self-worth is only fully known when we believe that it is lost. When we believe that our worth has vanished and so perhaps we might vanish and 
Yet we don't. Yet we don't. Reflect back to almost six years ago today. Almost six years ago to this day. It was the day before my 33rd birthday. It was also two days after the start of this current and now still ongoing Iraq war. And I was in my apartment in South Florida, an apartment that looked over what was an amazingly beautiful, well, spring day, but we can think of it in summer now in the Northeast. I've had to readjust from what used to be endless summer, seemingly, in South Florida. And I was really struggling that day, really struggling, because I just couldn't get this sermon written. It wouldn't come out. Six years in, it's really, really easy from my perspective, at least, to see what a mistake Iraq was. But at the time, although I felt it, I didn't know a way of saying it. And I didn't know a way of honoring as well that some people in my congregation might have a different perspective. And so I started real early that week. I wanted to produce the best, most thoughtful sermon that anyone could imagine. I started on Wednesday, sat and thought and wrote, and it was awful. Strike one. Thursday comes around. Sit and think and write. Friday, you get the picture. Saturday rolls around. There is no more time. Saturday morning, I got to get this done. I sit there angry, sit there saying, I have to do this. I have to do this. And in the back of my mind, these two thoughts are coming around. I'm going to have a pulpit in tomorrow and no sermon to preach in it and a birthday set to arrive and no one to celebrate it with. Because what was going on in my personal life is this was sort of three months in the end of the beginning, the end of the beginning of when my first marriage had broken up. So I've been shorn of everything that used to be important to me. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make a spectacular, colossal failure of myself. So I sit and I grit my GD teeth. I'm going to get this done. I'm going to get this done. Nothing. Nothing. Damn it. Nothing. 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and outside the sounds of spring break on that beautiful summer day, they're playing all around me, mocking me. Listen to the world singing outside. What the hell do you have going on in here? You cannot go out to play. You are being punished. 5 o'clock. Six o'clock, seven o'clock, nothing, nothing at all, feeling trapped and panicked and so incredibly lonely, 33 years old and no sermon to come, 33 years old and nothing to celebrate, and those tiny little violins start playing, (laughs) woe is me, woe is me, so alone, And so damned ineffective. 
And that frustration, I cannot tell you how deep it was. That anger at myself, that I was the problem and I had no idea how to solve the problem that was myself. And finally, I did the last thing that I could. After sitting and staring at that blank screen that mocked me for days on end. I remembered, with not a happy smile, but a wry smile. Lisa Simpson said, prayer, the last refuge of a scoundrel. (laughs) It was all that I had left. You who cannot do anything, I said to myself. You who cannot do a damn thing. So I clasped my hands angrily. I mean, you know, it wasn't a prayer petition. It was like I wanted to box. I wanted to hit myself right in the head. Come on, please. Please. I can't tell you all the words I used. (laughs) Why? Why now? Why are my faculties deserting me? Why? 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 And the words came. I don't know the source. God, the oversoul, the collective unconscious. Two words. Jesus wept. Well, if he could... (laughs) So could I. And I cried and sobbed like I have not for years. It went on and on and on. And in the back of my head, what I remembered is Rosie Greer from Free to Be You and Me. It's all right to cry. I said, yeah, I'm crying just like Rosie Greer said I should cry. And because of that, I cried even more because I felt like a helpless child. after that was done, I felt as clean and as pure and as refreshed as I had in weeks. I wiped myself off. I got down to work. And within three hours, not all night, that sermon was finished. It is all right to cry. Dark nights of the soul sometimes even come on sunny days in South Florida. And if we can answer them, not run from them, recognize that sometimes the only thing we can do is accept how miserable we feel. Kathleen Norris, one of my favorite spiritual writers, she did an essay once about folks who felt that amazing grace, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That would hurt people's self-esteem. So they took out wretch and they put in soul. Sometimes we feel wretched. And that's all right. There's no honesty. There's no truth that comes about by not recognizing how awful we can feel about ourselves. There's only denial. There's only a lie. If we don't recognize it, sometimes we have to face it. What is there? even if we don't think that anything is left. Sometimes at these moments, the reality of grace hits us. i quote to you now from my favorite sermon of all time, a decade and a half after I, wrote, after I first read it. 
there still are no more important words that I know or, frankly, that I can share. It's from Paul Tillich, from his simple and wonderful and life-giving sermon, You Are Accepted. Sometimes at that moment, and the moment that he was talking about were those dark nights of the soul, sometimes at that moment a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is as though a voice is saying, You are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do and accomplish much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. In those moments, we are reminded. And not reminded of a fact. It's not what it's about. You take the word reminded apart. It's kind of like remember. Remember. It's to be put back together. Reminded. Exactly what Einstein was talking about. The same kind of consciousness that creates a problem cannot solve it. When our lives are reframed in relationship to whatever we call that deeper, truer love that sustains us, whatever name you give to it. When our lives are reframed in that way, we know that unlike Humpty Dumpty, well, like him in this way, we will fall and we will crack. But we don't need all the king's horses and all the king's men. And the end of our story is not like Humpty Dumpty's, who could not be put back together again. We can be placed back into wholeness, not perfection, but wholeness. If we are willing to receive, and if we are willing to start over again in love. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Source of love and being even greater sometimes of their absence in our lives. We pray for this. The opportunity to see and to know that there are moments in which we feel, moments in which even we know that we cannot earn our way into the blessings of this life. No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we strive, and we know that so many of us, we are strivers, problem solvers. May we, in those moments when we feel we have come to the end of ourselves, look deeper, open up once again to this life, not even knowing the answer that there will be. And may we allow ourselves to receive, to feel, to know, and to experience 
that great deep well of being that asks nothing of us. Simply be. Simply be alive. Simply be loved. Simply be beloved. Amen. Please rise as you're able and join us for our last song today.